Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome back. It's so good to be together. Yes, we can celebrate that. My name is Ben. I'm the campus pastor here at our Noblesville campus, and uh, I am so excited to be with you guys this morning. Um, it, I'll just tell you, in case you've ever wondered, it's really weird to preach into a video camera. <laughs> the first time I came in here and none of you were here, I was just like, I don't like this. I don't want to do this. But uh, it's good to be with you. I will say that uh, teaching online is both a blessing and a curse. The blessing part of it is obvious that we got to continue forward as a church, continue studying God's word together and connecting online. Uh, the curse is this. Uh, every time I would teach online, my phone would start buzzing and this is the nonsense that would show up. And I, I was turned into every animal under the sun. This one's from Alex Ramirez, who is leading worship up here this morning. I like what she did with my nose. I feel like the ears are overkill. So uh, that's what I would say about that. But uh, honestly and seriously, thank you guys so much for your patience and your encouragement and your generosity, and, uh, and just for sticking with us through what has been a really weird three or four months, I'm sure, for, for everyone. Um, we couldn't have done it without the way that you all and we all pulled together as a church family. I will say this, uh, this is not the end of the road, obviously. This is step number one, and so I'll, I would just ask that you continue praying for our staff, praying for our elders, um, as we continue to make decisions about kids and students and groups and bigger gatherings and, and who knows what's coming down the road for us. But we do know this, that God has told us very clearly in his word that if we ask him for wisdom, he will give it to us. And so I'm asking you to join us in praying that. Would you pray for us every day just that we would have wisdom as we continue to make those, those decisions? I want to start a little bit differently this morning, and admittedly, this might feel a little bit strange uh, for some, but I want to start just by taking a, a moment to turn all of our thoughts toward God. And uh, we've already started doing that through worship and through prayer this morning, but, uh, but I want to just lead you through a time of considering his qualities and his attributes and really focusing our hearts in on him. Two things before we do that. First of all, this is a family environment, and some of you have brought kids, and, uh, and maybe you're already thinking, maybe I should leave. Not at all. Uh, we knew your kids were coming. We love them. We love having them in the room. Uh, when they make noise, please do not shush them. That just reminds us of the good gift that God has given us in our kids. So that's number one. Number two is this. You may be here this morning, and, uh, and you may not believe in God. Uh, you may be an atheist. You may be an agnostic. You may just be here because uh, somebody asked you to come or, or uh, you're searching some things out. And so in this moment, I would invite you just to learn a little bit more about what the Bible says about God. We're only going to pray what the Bible has to say about God, his character and his qualities. And so maybe this even in itself will be a learning moment for you. But if you have your phone in your hand, I want to invite you to just put it down. Uh, even if it's in your pocket, maybe take it out and set it beside you so it wouldn't be a distraction. And uh, I think it might be helpful if, if we just close our eyes together and let's spend a moment focusing in on God. Revelation chapter 4, among other places in God's word, describes him as being seated on his throne. 
And so I want to I invite you this morning to imagine God seated on his throne. As you are walking up before his throne, there he is in all of his glory, all of his radiance, all of his might, all of his purity. God is seated on his throne even now. Let's think about what the Bible says about God. Revelation 22.13 tells us that he is the alpha and the omega. He is the beginning and the end. And it points toward the fact that God is eternal in nature. He always was and he always will be. God is self-existent because unlike everything else in his creation, he didn't have a beginning. He is the beginning. And the first four words of the Bible show us that as they read, in the beginning, God. He had no starting point. He will have no stopping point. He is eternal. I want you to think about that for just a minute. I want you to think about God's knowledge, and I want you to think about his understanding. 1 John chapter 3 puts it as plainly as possible. It says, God knows everything. There is nothing that escapes him. There is nothing that he doesn't understand. God has never been confused. Nothing has ever occurred to God. God knows everything. Try to wrap your mind around that concept this morning. And I want you to think about God's power. Romans 1.20 tells us that God's eternal power has been clearly seen ever since the creation of the world. And in Genesis 1, we read that God created everything that he spoke and things came into existence. By his words, the complexity of your body and mine uh, came to being. And then in Colossians 1.17, we read that in him all things hold together. So not only is he the creator, he's also the one who sustains everything. Think about what that means for you right now, even as you take your next breath. Every breath you breathe is a gift from God. And you won't get the next one outside of his hand of provision. He is the most powerful being in the universe. Think about that for a minute. Let's pray together. Father God, you are awesome. You are powerful. You are wise. You are creative. God, you are high above. Your, your word says that, that your thoughts are far above our thoughts. Your ways are high above our ways, and we just recognize that right now. We recognize who you are as we come before you and the great privilege that we have to come before you and that you have extended a hand down toward us, that you would care for us. Who are we, Lord, that you would care for us? And yet your word clearly tells us that you do. And we're thankful for that this morning. We're thankful for uh, you, your 
your grace, your mercy, and we just stand in awe before you, Lord. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Now, I want you to, to consider something. Taking time to do that uh, is really important. And I hope it's something that you do on a regular basis when you pray, that you spend some time just recognizing who it is that you're praying to and what his position is as creator and, and our position as the created. Uh, I hope that's something that, that you do regularly. I think we also need to recognize that no matter what our thoughts are or, or just were about God, they're never big enough. Like our, our finite human minds can never fully understand the complexities and the depth and, and the greatness of God. He is the most beautiful, the most creative, the most wise, the most powerful being who ever was or ever will be. That's the God of the Bible. And yet the biblical account tells us that shortly after creation, mankind rebelled against him. That man wasn't content uh, or satisfied in this God that, that we just considered. Man decided to look for satisfaction outside of God. And we did exactly what God commanded us not to do. And with that rebellion, what the Bible calls sin, came the penalty of death. That's what our death deserves, is sin. And God would have been completely justified to just leave us to that outcome, to just wash his hands of us and walk away. He would have been justified in doing that because it's what we deserve. But it, in his goodness, uh, he did not do that. And this is the gospel right? That word just means good news. This is the good news that God so loved the world. The world he had created, the world that rebelled against him, the world that was headed for death and hell. He so loved that world that he sent his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And the apostle Paul uses some language to describe that that I think is really helpful. Here's what Paul says about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich... Now let's pause right there. How was Jesus Christ rich? Well, it's all of the things that we just considered about God. Jesus is and was in very nature God. He, he is the most powerful being in the world. He is the most creative being in the world. He is the wisest being in the world. He was rich. And it says, yet for your sake, he became poor. So God made a decision in eternity past that when mankind sinned and broke the relationship with him, that he would be the solution for our sin, that he would leave heaven, leave his rightful place of communion with the Father, enjoying all of the benefits of being fully God with the Father, that he would leave that and become poor. He would become like us. He would be like his creation, fragile and vulnerable, like us in every way, so that, Paul says, you, through his poverty, might become rich. And that's what we just thought of when we talked about if we believe in him, we will not perish, but we'll have everlasting life. See, the only way for us to be saved from the punishment our sin deserved was for someone else to take that punishment for us, and that's exactly what God did by sending his son, Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that through his poverty you might become rich. That is the gospel. 
in plainest form, that is the gospel. And I want us to keep all of that in mind this morning as we continue on in our series, Knowing Him, where we've been examining the life of Jesus. And we've been asking the question, what does it mean for us to walk as Jesus walked? How do we make his priorities our priorities? And so far, we've looked at his baptism, his temptation, Uh, We read about the calling of his first disciples when he said, uh, come and see and and follow me. And then last week, we looked at his first miracle at the wedding in Cana, where we learned that Jesus does not have a problem with wine. He has a problem with bad wine. Okay, that should have been on your notes page. I don't know if you filled that in or not. But that brings us to John chapter 2, verse 13. If you brought a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. If you didn't bring a Bible, these verses are going to be on the screens. If you're used to using one of the Bibles in the room, I'm so sorry. Part of offering a touchless service is we took them all out of here. And so I want to encourage you to bring a Bible if you have one. If you don't have one, we would still love to give you one. You can stop by the info hub on your way out, and we have a a fresh, brand new, never-touched, COVID-free Bible for you, okay? Stop by there and get one. But anyway, John chapter 2, verse 13 is where we're going to start, and here's what we read. It says, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, let's pause right there. You likely have heard that term before, the Passover, Uh, This was a a Jewish festival, a week-long Jewish festival held in Jerusalem every single year. And Passover was a really big deal for the Jewish people. In fact, it still is because it's their way of remembering how God delivered the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. If you want to know more about how he did that, you can look at the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus. It details out the, the whole event, and it's fascinating what God did. Well, the Passover is intended to help the Jewish people remember all that God did and his kindness in saving them from their bondage in Egypt. So as you can imagine, there was a sense of excitement leading up to the Passover feast. And uh, everybody looked forward to it. In fact, Jewish tradition required a full month of preparation leading up to the Passover. And it, uh, it included things like repairing roads and rebuilding bridges and painting tombs white. Just all of these things to make sure that they were ready for the big cele- celebration. And this is an interesting note, and it's important to what we're going to read today. Attendance at Passover was not optional. If you were a Jewish man, you were required to attend Passover. And that meant that if you didn't live in Jerusalem, you had to make plans to travel there. You had to save up money for the journey and and find a place to stay. and, And you had to have money for the sacrifices that were going to be required. So I want you to keep all of that in mind as we read on. But first, I want you to think about what this would have been like for those first disciples who were traveling with Jesus. John and Andrew had had that initial conversation with Jesus where he had said, come and see and and follow me. And we don't know what they talked about, but we do know that those two guys walked away from that conversation and they said, we found him. We found the Messiah. He's the one, no doubt in our mind. And then uh, the next couple of days, they picked up a few other guys. They picked up Peter and Philip and Nathaniel who joined in. And all five of these guys saw Jesus change the water into wine, which confirmed what they already believed in their hearts. Like, he, he's doing miracles now. He certainly is who he said he was. And so now they're headed to the most holy city 
to celebrate the most holy day with the one who they fully believe is the Holy One of God. And I just want us to to think for a minute about what would have been going through their minds. What is Jesus going to do when when we get there? Is he going to do another miracle, maybe more wine, maybe something even bigger to show who he is? Will there be a parade? Maybe he'll jump up on the steps of the temple and just loudly declare, it's me, I'm here, Uh, we're all going to be good. Well, let's keep reading. Let's see what happens. In verse 14, it says, in the temple courts... He found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. Okay, so Jesus and his guys arrive in Jerusalem. Uh, They make their way to the temple, and then John describes a scene of what's happening there. We've got a picture of the temple, so you can kind of envision this. This outer area here is what the text is referring to as the temple courts, and this is where everyone would be gathered and where uh, all of this scene is going to take place. And it surrounds the temple in the middle, which is meant to represent God's presence with the people. This is the place where the people can come and they can be made right with God through their worship and their sacrifices. But when Jesus arrives at the temple, what he he finds there looks less like a place of worship and more like the county fair. I mean, there's just, there's animals everywhere and people are buying and selling and, and, and there's people exchanging money. It's just this, this scene of, of, it just looks like a farmer's market going on all around the, the temple here. Now, when you think about the number of people who had to travel from great distance to attend the Passover, the fact that you could buy an animal right there in the temple courts, I mean, that sounds really convenient, right? You didn't, have to travel with your animal and bring feed and find water and all of those things. But I want you to know that convenience wasn't the name of the game. Instead, the religious leaders had taken advantage of the sacrificial system by saying that only their animals were worthy of sacrifice. So you couldn't bring your own. You had to buy theirs. And on top of this, we we read about people exchanging money. Well, the... the, uh, the religious leaders required not only that you buy their animals, but that you use their money to buy those animals. And so you would bring your money, exchange it for theirs at a very high exchange rate in their favor. And so now you're buying their animals with their money at great cost to you. Okay, that's the scene that Jesus has just encountered as he comes into the temple courts. The very system that God had put in place for men to be able to draw near to him in worship had been hijacked and turned into a money-making scheme. And that made Jesus angry. Look at what happens next in verse 15. It says, so he made a whip out of cords and he drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and he overturned their tables. Now, does this sound like the Jesus that we most often think of when we think of Jesus? Probably not, right? We, we like to think about the Jesus that teaches people and loves people and feeds people. And, uh, and it's very different from the guy we find in John 2, 15. I mean, is this even the same man? He's, he's making a whip and he's driving these animals out of the temple and flipping tables and coins are going everywhere. What was behind Jesus's anger? And was he justified in it? Well, we already know the first level of his anger, 
right? He was angry that, that the uh, religious leaders were taking advantage of the sacrificial system to gain wealth for themselves. That's the, kind of the surface layer of his anger. But if we go a little bit deeper, we read in verse 16, uh, this very next verse, John's going to show us the second layer of what's going on here. John says, uh, to those who sold doves, Jesus said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. Now, this is important because these are Jesus's only recorded words in this entire encounter. And he directs them specifically at the people who are selling doves. Okay, what is that all about? Well, God, in his wisdom, when he set up this sacrificial system, knew that there would be some people who could not afford a costly sacrifice, like a sheep or a cow. And so he made a provision for the poor so that they could still come and be made right with him. We find that provision uh, in Leviticus chapters 5 and 6, where it says that as a penalty for the sins they have committed, they must bring to the Lord a female lamb or a goat from the flock as a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for them for their sin. Okay, that's, that's the command right there. Here's the provision in verse 7. Anyone who cannot afford a lamb is to bring two doves or two young pigeons uh, to the Lord as a penalty for their sin. And what you'll find all throughout the Old Testament book of Leviticus is that small birds like doves and pigeons were allowed as offerings for the poor. God put this exception in place as a means for everyone to have, have access to his love and to his forgiveness. You didn't have to have a certain amount of income or a certain amount of wealth to be able to draw near to the Lord. But now, even that provision had been molested by the religious leaders who are found not extending that same grace and mercy to the poor, but rather taking advantage of even the poorest among them. That's the second layer of Jesus' anger, but it goes even deeper. Because when you read in Luke chapter 2 that shortly after Jesus was born, uh, his parents brought him to this very same temple. Look at the detail that uh, Luke records there. In Luke 2, and 24, he writes that when the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses... Joseph and Mary took Jesus to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Now jump to verse 24. It says, and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. And what Luke is showing us in his gospel is that the provision that God had given to the Israelites for the poor Mary and Joseph fall into the category of those who could use that provision. They are the poor. And so for Jesus, this isn't just some group of people, you know, someone else's problem. No, this is personal. This was mom and dad. This was the provision that was, was given so that they could draw close to God. And this market that the religious leaders had turned the temple into exploited the poor in society. Jesus' own family had experienced this exploitation. But that's not the end. I want you to consider one last layer under Jesus' anger. Earlier, we read the passage that said, Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor 
so that through, your pro- poverty, through his poverty, you might become rich. That is the very heart and the very character of God. That is what God is like. He would give of himself so that you could become rich. He, he would become poor so that, so that you could know life. That's the heart of God. And the very people who should be the representation of God, an imperfect representation, granted, but a representation of God, the religious leaders, the ones who people should look at and be able to say, that's what God is like. They are the ones who, instead of showing grace and mercy, are just presenting greed and selfishness. These are the ones who are molesting God's system. And Jesus was not content to just stand by and let that happen. And so he did what needed to be done. And he twisted cords into a whip and he drove the animals out and he flipped those tables and scattered their coins everywhere. And in that act, Jesus stood between the poor and the marginalized and those who would seek to exploit them. Folks, as followers of Jesus, when we see people of any group, color, or class being abused or taken advantage of. The way of Jesus is not passivity. The way of Jesus is not to simply look the other way and it's just always been this way and there's really nothing I can do. No, the way of Jesus is to get involved and to do something. And there are things in our world right now that should make us angry, just like this scene in the temple made Jesus angry. But what we do with that anger is the key. We read in Ephesians 4.26 that in our anger, we are not to sin. Okay, in your anger, do not sin. And the prohibition is not against anger. Do you see that? The prohibition is against sin. It's against what you do with your anger. Be angry, but don't sin. And so it's really important that we understand what righteous anger looks like and what it doesn't look like. And so I want to suggest four things to you this morning, uh, the differences between righteous anger and sinful anger. The first difference is, is this. Righteous anger is always concerned about God's glory, but sinful anger is concerned about self. Sinful anger is born out of us not getting our way right? We, the deal goes away. We didn't want it to. The end result is not to our benefit, and that makes us angry. That would be a, an example of sinful, selfish anger. But righteous anger is always focused on God receiving the glory that he deserves. Secondly, uh, righteous anger is always focused on a problem. Sinful anger is focused on a person. So righteous anger looks at things like injustice and racism and poverty or immorality, whatever it might be, and it focuses in on the problem. Sinful anger says, you are the problem, and so my anger is focused at you, a person. Okay, see that distinction? Thirdly, righteous anger is always constructive Sinful anger is destructive. Righteous anger looks at at the identified problem and it gets involved. Righteous anger says, what can I do to make what is wrong right? And it takes action. Sinful anger is destructive. and, And quite honestly, it usually just looks like a vomiting out of unfettered emotions. 
and it leaves no lasting benefit, no real uh, help to the situation. It's just an explosion, an emotional explosion. Finally, righteous anger is always short-lived and with a purpose. And part of the reason why this uh, passage in John chapter 2 feels maybe a little bit awkward to us is because Jesus doesn't live there, right? We, We don't just find him in a constant state of anger. His anger comes, it's for a purpose, and then it subsides, and Jesus moves on. But sinful anger is often long-lasting, and it eventually turns into bitterness. That's where that leads. And you and I both know people who just seem to stoke their anger, right? And we maybe even hear them talk about what they're angry about from the past. And and I know I've thought before, like, why are you still angry about that? You know, it's so far back there. It doesn't even matter anymore. But you've, you've experienced that too, I'm sure, and they just continue to relive it and get angry over and over again, and it will absolutely eat a person up. Maybe this is a, a helpful way to, uh, to think about anger and to help distinguish between those two kinds of anger. I want to give you one word of caution, though, in making that distinction. We should be really careful and very mindful of the fact that Jesus saw this situation with absolute clarity. Okay, I have no doubt in my mind that the Father had, had spoken to Jesus through his Holy Spirit, that Jesus had a complete understanding, no question mark in his mind about what was going on here and what action he was going to take. You and I do not always have that kind of clarity. And so we should do what Scripture says, and we should be slow to speak, slow to become angry. We should be quick to listen. We should be always examining our hearts. Is there any other agenda? Is there any other political view? Is there anything else that might be uh, fueling my anger except for a deep love for God and a deep love for people? Because here's what I know for sure. No matter what kind of anger you express, that anger will leave a lasting impression on people. Either good or bad, your anger will leave a lasting impression on people. And for followers of Jesus, righteous anger is the only right way. It's the only right way. So I want to tell you a couple of ways that I've seen just even in the the last couple of weeks that this has played out. How, how do we use righteous anger for a beneficial, constructive outcome? I know a man in our church whose daughter went through a terrible divorce. I mean, it was, it was a bitter fight to the end, and as bad as you can imagine, and then maybe some more. And he watched his daughter go through this, and ultimately she ended up as a single mom, which in and of itself was really difficult. And there were a lot of moments going through that that this father was extremely angry. Probably went back and forth between righteous anger and sinful anger. I'm sure my heart would do the same. But two weeks ago, this man called me and he said, Ben, do we have any single moms in our church? Because I watched my daughter do this and I know how hard it is for single moms and I just got this stimulus check and I don't need it. Who needs help? And we were able to bless a couple of moms in our church because that guy had taken his anger and he had focused it in a really beneficial, really helpful way to bless some moms. I also know that a, um, let me back up. 
There's a woman in our church who has recently befriended uh, a woman and started a conversation with a woman she did not know. But she saw a story about a student in one of our Hamilton County schools who was bullied for the color of her skin to the point that she dropped out of school. And uh, the family just finally had enough, pulled the young girl out of school. And uh, this woman was angry, and rightfully so. I was angry when I saw that broadcast. But the woman, instead of just venting or raging, reached out to the mom of this family and offered some of her expertise and some of her life experience in what the the family is going through and started a conversation to help guide this family towards good next steps. And those are just a couple of really simple ways where we can take our anger and we can focus it just as Jesus did in this, uh, this illustration in the, in the temple for a positive, God-glorifying, people-loving kind of outcome. But no matter what we do in our anger, it will absolutely leave a lasting impression on the people around us. That was true for Jesus, too, in this story. His, his righteous anger left an impression on a couple of different groups of people. Uh, one guy in particular we're going to talk about next week because this story of the clearing of the temple is really part one of a two-part story. And so you're going to meet a guy next week named Nicodemus, and you're going to find out uh, how Jesus' anger in the temple changed his life really forever. But I want you to notice what kind of an impression Jesus' anger left on the disciples. As we wrap up today, let's look at one last verse, verse 17. His disciples had seen all of this unfold, you know, coming into the city, what's Jesus going to do? And then all of a sudden he starts flipping tables and and, uh, making a whip and running the cattle out of the temple and uh, yelling at the people who are selling doves. And here's what verse 17 tells us. It says, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. You see, one of the prophecies about the coming Messiah is found in Psalm 69, and it says exactly that, that zeal for your house will consume me. And so as Jesus is, is acting out of his righteous anger, it pops in the disciples' minds, and all of a sudden they realize he's not going to do a miracle there's not going to be any parade. He, he's not going to get up on the steps and make some kind of announcement. He's doing it. He's fulfilling prophecy right now as his all-consuming passion for his father's house just comes out in this cleansing of the temple. And, and his clearing of the temple was really, in a sense, a foreshadowing of how he would one day, just a few years later, clear the way for all of us to gain access to the Father. In fact, when the Jewish leaders confront Jesus about, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? What authority do you have? Jesus told them, you destroy this temple, and I'll build it back up in three days. And of course, we know that Jesus was talking about his body which they did destroy, and they nailed it to a cross, and he died, and they placed his body in a tomb, and three days later, by the powerful Holy Spirit of God, he came back to life, giving you and I hope beyond death and beyond the grave and conquering once and for all that penalty of sin. That's exactly what happened. Jesus opened a way when there was no way for us to enter back into a relationship with God the Father. Though he was rich... Yet for your sake, he became poor, so that through his poverty, you might become rich. Folks, that is the gospel. Let me pray for us this morning.
Father God, thank you so much for your great love for us. Father, when we were dead in our sins with no way out, uh, Father, you made a way for us to come back into a right relationship with you, and it cost you everything as you stepped out of heaven and took on flesh and lived a perfect, sinless life, becoming the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And you laid that life down, Father, so that we wouldn't have to experience an eternity without you. God, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you for the hope that we have in him. And Lord, I pray that we would be faithful to pattern our lives after Jesus that we would act out of righteous anger, that we would be angry and yet not sin. Lord, that we would see the injustice in our world and that we would take action to make right what is wrong, Lord, and to bring healing to broken places. God, we love you. Thank you for loving us. It's in Christ's name we